0: Now, we're coming to the end of a series in John's Gospel, chapters 5 through 12. And the plan is, God willing, we'll finish next Sunday, the first Sunday in Advent. Today, I'd like us to read from John chapter 11, uh, verse 38 to chapter 12, verse 26. There is a bit of overlap from chapter 11, which we looked at last week, but the reason for that will become obvious as Uh, we read on into chapter 12. So John 11, then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb, that's Lazarus' tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odour, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him, and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, in other words, not for the Jewish nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now, the Passover of the Jews was at hand The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And Where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Well, let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we come to the end of this series in John's Gospel, we pray that if in someone's life the light of life has begun to shine into the darkness of the human soul, And that light has not yet overcome the darkness. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, that soul would be one for Jesus. That the darkness would not extinguish the light, but that the light would flood the darkness, overcome it, and bring forgiveness and everlasting life in Jesus' name. Our Father, will you convict anyone in that perilous position of indecision, of the eternal consequences of choosing darkness and not light. And for those of us who have been converted through the grace and mercy of God, flood our hearts with a deep, deep emotion and a deep, deep devotion to Jesus in light of all that he means to us and all that he's done for us. We pray these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. Now, the title that I've given to this penultimate talk in the series is The Shadow of the Cross. When the shadow of the cross looms over us, as it uh, does from time to time, depending on what passage of Scripture we are looking at, it is a dark shadow, but it is also where the brightest light shines over our lives. The focus from now on in John's gospel is on Jesus' death. He refers to his death in John in this way. As we read, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, three points you'll see on the back of the service sheet. The first is to link into the raising of Lazarus from the dead. Now, I titled that Jesus' substitutionary death for uh, the nations. Now, we read the back end of chapter 11, where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. If you were here last week, it is a powerful and a moving account. The shock of Jesus' unexpected delay in coming to Bethany in response to the family's desperate plea for help. Jesus' ministry to Martha, one of truth, I am the resurrection and the life. His ministry to Mary, tears, Jesus wept. And yet, emotion that gave way to resurrection, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead as a sign of what will happen at the last day for all who believe in Jesus as their uh, Savior. Now, from verse 45 of chapter 11, John records the different reactions to what Jesus said. Had done. Some of the Jews believed. Others, though verse 46 of chapter 11, went to the religious leaders to tell them what Jesus had done. The Pharisees call a meeting of the Jewish ruling council. Just let me read again from verse 47. What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. His words are more poignant than he realizes. They are prophetic Verse 51, he did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, for Israel, for the Jewish people. And verse 52, not for the nation only, Israel, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus will die for the nations because God so loved the world. And so from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death, but all in God's purposes for the salvation of the nations. Now, the only way Jesus will become the resurrection and the life is by dying himself. Now, you know that, many of you, but we need to feel that. He destroys the grave, by being put in one. He destroys death by death. He destroys sin by being made sin. He extinguishes wrath by bearing wrath. In every count, in every dimension of the gospel, there is substitution. Him in our place. Substitution is the basis on which he says, I am the resurrection in the life. Whoever believes in me, my substitutionary death and resurrection implied. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me, my death and resurrection shall never die. Jesus' substitutionary death for the nations of the earth Now that point about the nations is repeated through chapter 12. Let me show you. Verse 19 of chapter 12. The Pharisees comment on the vast crowd. Verse 19. Luke, the world has gone after him. That's a pretty accurate statement of human history. Since the cross, the world has gone after him. Unless we are in any doubt that this is what John intends to signal, it follows in verses 20 and 21 of chapter 12. Greeks or Gentiles, in other words, non-Jews, other nations who want to see Jesus. What a question. What a statement. We want to see Jesus. It comes from Gentile lips. And notice verse 21. It is at this precise moment at the arrival of the Gentiles, the moment when the world is looking for Jesus, that Jesus makes the announcement, the hour has now come. Up to now he had said, it is not yet time. But now when the Gentile world says, we want Jesus, he says, now is the time. Jesus laid down his life for all the nations. He is the Savior for all people who believe. The gospel is global. Jesus died for every race, nation, people, rich, poor, middle class, working class, upper class, black and white. A global Jesus, a global gospel, a global mission, a global God. Jesus' substitutionary death for the nations. Now, that's my way of background. Let's get into the meat of our passage. And I've given verses 1 to 11 of chapter 12, the title, Devotion, Betrayal, and the Cost of Discipleship. And, of course, they go together. Why not have a talk on devotion? Followed by next week on betrayal, followed by in two weeks' time on the cost of discipleship. For every day in the Christian life, these are the dynamics that run together. These are sweet verses, 1 to 11 of chapter 12. Sweet verses. They're shocking verses, and they're sobering verses. Let me ask you a question. What would you do for Jesus? How much do you love him? How emotional is your reaction to what he has done for you? How deep does your affection for your Lord Jesus run in your soul? Now, if you're not a Christian, you will hear these questions as a ladder that is far too high to climb. But if you are a Christian, somewhere in these questions, when I read them out, your head will bow because you will feel not enough. But somewhere, God willing, if grace has a grip of your heart, when I read these questions out, your heart will have missed a beat because you will do everything for him. Verses 1 to 8 describe how Jesus is anointed at Bethany. What an occasion it is. I mean, this is some dinner party. A dinner party for this man who was dead and is now alive. John makes it point really clearly, and he says, he says and Lazarus was there reclining at the table. All these folks who had come to the funeral now came to this dinner party. Now notice the bookends. So what's John, the writer, trying to do? Look at the bookends, the bit at the beginning and the end of chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Look at the beginning first. It begins, verse 1, with the phrase, six days before the Passover. Now, Passover uh, is the big celebration in the Jewish calendar, remembering how the angel of death passed over the homes of God's people when they were in slavery in Egypt, passed over their homes because the blood of the lamb was on the doorposts of their homes. And that led to Pharaoh allowing God's people to leave Egypt. Every year they gathered in Jerusalem and they sacrificed a Passover lamb. And remember how the angel of death had passed over and they looked forward to how a Messiah would come, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world that the angel of death might pass over all who believe. That's one bookend. The other bookend, verses 7 and 8 of chapter 12, Mary has just been criticized for anointing Jesus with his expensive perfume. Verse 7, she said, "Leave." Jesus said, Leave her alone so that she may keep it. That's whatever perfume is left for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. You will not always have me with you, is Jesus making a reference to his imminent death, and beyond that to his resurrection and return to God the Father. But along with that, Jesus says to those who are criticizing Mary, leave her alone so that she can keep whatever ointment is left and pour it on my dead body. That's what she's saying. Now these bookends are surely signaling to us that Mary's actions here, her unreserved, deep love and devotion to her Lord Jesus was because she knew he was going to die. Because she knew he was going to die for her and for her sister Martha and for her brother Lazarus. Now, of course, it is an act of unreserved devotion because of what Jesus had done for her family. She had given Lazarus back to them but there is a deeper devotion in Mary's actions because she understood what Jesus still had to do. I wonder if she glanced at Lazarus and said, you have been given back to us as a sign that you will be taken from us again and given back to us forever. She knew that Jesus had to die as her substitute, that our sins might be forgiven, and have life in him and everlasting life. How do we know that Mary knew this? Well, remember back in chapter 11, Jesus had met her As he came to Bethany after his delay and she ran out to Jesus and she said to him, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. And he said, Mary, Mary, listen to me. I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me And now we know what that means. Whoever believes in my substitutionary death and resurrection, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Mary? Yes, Lord. And now here she is in her home, and she's saying, Jesus, I want to show you that I understand. I want to show you that I believe this with all my heart. And so she took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Devotion to Jesus. Would you do that for him? Every Christian soul here is saying yes. How will you, how do you show your loving devotion to Jesus? What is the best thing you can give him or do for him? Would you do that for him? Why would you? And don't mishear this off the back of a notice about serving. Come off every single rota. If that is making you lose your love for him. Devotion to the work of the Lord is nothing like devotion to the Lord. Why would you do this for him? Because of what he has done for you. Do you want to? Yes. To the one who has brought peace to your soul. To the one who is your shepherd through the dark valleys. To the one who will hold your hand through the darkest valley of all, to the one who stood in the place of darkest hell at Calvary so that you will not, what will you do for your Lord Jesus? It is not a condition of forgiveness. There are no conditions to free grace. If you hear this as a condition of forgiveness, you have not grasped or understood the full orb of the gospel that is all of grace. It is a consequence of forgiveness. As you hear this, if your heart goes cold, your heart is not gripped by grace, if your heart is flickering or missing a beat, I'm not sure that's a great image, is it? We do have a defibrillator upstairs. You see the point, though? A Christian soul will do anything for Jesus. I would. You would. We will. We are. And so, just in a moment, in that home, and of course, hostility, betrayal is all around Jesus, just in a moment, the house was filled with the fragrance of perfume deep devotion deep devotion deep devotion from Mary because she knew that at her funeral the angel of death would look down and have no business there because there was no soul All there was was a shell. She knew that the angel of death would pass over her. Because the angel of death laid its dark, dark hand on Jesus. That's what's going on here. And what's going on in this room, as we meditate on these things as Christians, is at our funeral the angel of death will look down and say, "What business do I have with that soul for all eternity?" And the angel of death will leave the scene because there's no business for them there. Deep devotion in that room, but in that very room betrayal. Might there be betrayal in this room now? Betrayal means not being for Jesus. Whoever is not for him is against him. Don't for a moment allow yourself to be comforted by the fact that neutrality is neutrality. There is no such thing. There is either devotion or betrayal. In the end, Verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bags, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Isn't it striking that through John's gospel, as it describes Jesus' life, devotion and betrayal are bedfellows. Where there is one, there is the other. Whether there is light, there is darkness. whether there is faith, there is rejection. whether there are those who are all for Jesus, there are those who are all against him. And at the end of the day, you come down on one side or the other, everybody does. And if you come down on the side of Jesus, if you believe in him, if you follow him as your Savior and Lord, if you are associated with him, there will be cost. Verse 9. Extraordinary statement when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. Isn't that extraordinary? What do you do to someone who's been raised to new life? I mean, for Lazarus, it was a sign of eternity, but what do you do to someone who's been given their physical life back? Try and kill them. What does the devil seek to do to someone who's been given you life in the spirit? Try and take that spirit out of them. Let me tell you what we do during the week. Just to convince you that ministers don't work one day a week. We actually work two, two days a week. Lots of our time is spent training people here. Lots of my time, Roger's time, is spent training people like Sam and Johnny and the younger guys and women for future ministry. In our training sessions this term with the ministers and training, that's the grown-up people here who are about to get the baton in their hands like Sam. One of the most important lessons I'm trying to teach them, and it's a hard lesson and prepare them for, is a lifetime of constant spiritual warfare. There is not a day that goes by in the Christian life for a Christian leader when they are out of that battle. Not one day. Why? Because the devil hates the advance of the gospel. Plant a church, sign up to hostility. What are the antidotes? What can I say to them to take the heat down? If you want to avoid suffering for the sake of the gospel, imagine if this were our seminar during the week. Take a deep breath of apathy and the heat will reduce. Reduce. If you want to avoid suffering for the sake of the gospel then a lukewarm attitude to Jesus will turn down the heat of opposition. Now who here has not turned down their devotion to lukewarm? I have often in my life as a Christian because it's hard and we're human. And if you say you haven't done that I don't believe you. But you do not turn it off for long periods of time. because you come to church or you go to your small group or you meet with someone and your heart is warmed as they remind you of Jesus. If you live a life of lukewarmness for months on end, then I would question if you are really converted to Christ. The true antidote to suffering for the sake of the gospel is devotion to Jesus. The true antidote to suffering for the sake of the gospel is wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Let me just use a very trivial analogy. It's much, much better being passionate as a supporter for a football team, apart from some teams, That it is being lukewarm. If you're lukewarm and they play badly, you don't go back till next season. If you're passionate, you're there through thick and thin. And you're there on the terracing when the season turns around. And that's the Christian life. Stick in. Stick at it. Stay with it. The only way. Now, if you are converted to Christ, the angel of death has no business with you. That's justification by grace through faith. But in the Christian life, day to day, the devil has business with us. And the way to keep him at bay is devotion to Jesus. Love Jesus. And that's why we need local churches in the first service. I was a little off script, dangerous thing to do, and I'll get around when I go home, so don't tell her I said you that. Why was I off script? Because I spent yesterday with people who are really, really beleaguered. Life is just really difficult and hard, and I just saw them come in this morning, and they just needed Jesus. And They left. Not with their circumstances altered, but with their hearts warmed because of Jesus. Now, third and finally, chapter 12, verses 12 to 26, empty praise, sincere searching, and serious words. Let's read from verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat in it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughters of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt." Now that's spot-on theology. I mean, it absolutely cracked it in what they say. Hosanna means, Lord, save me now. (laughs) Hosanna is what you cried out. And uh, then the quote comes from... Psalm 118 I think blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord Psalm 118 is what you said or sung after the Passover feast they see Jesus the Messiah, he's there and they say save me now Messiah that's spot on theology A star truth but it's empty words there is a mismatch in understanding as to what kind of king he is, what kind of Messiah he is. I mean, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a warhorse, not a charger, a donkey. Now, whether this is right or not, I know the donkey was prophesied, but a donkey to me is a little bit like a lamb. Kind of pathetic beast. What's the height of a donkey's career? They're either pit ponies in history or they take people for rides on beaches, or they used to. There's Jesus on his war horse. About to give his life as a lamb. and their words are empty and their praise is shallow the disciples did come to understand in the end the crowd though would soon be crying crucify him you will never you will never truly worship Jesus until you understand his cross And you and I can sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We can be creed Christians without being Christ Christians. We can say all the right things, do all the right words. I can preach sermons that are absolutely A star, well, B star on theology. I can get it. I can crack it. I can teach these guys how to do ABC sermons. But only Jesus and die for our sins. Maybe as we come to the end of our studies in John's gospel, next week we'll focus on a wonderful description of his death. As the shadow of the cross falls, maybe you are not yet a Christian. Maybe you're listening online and you're not yet a Christian, but you are sincere in your searching for Jesus, like the Greeks in Jerusalem. Verse 20, wonderful verse. Read it with me again. Among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, so they came to Philip, who was from beside it in Galilee, and asked him, what a question. Sir, we want to see Jesus. What a contrast. From that day on, they plotted as to how they would kill him. We want to see him. Where is he? Philip, verse 22, told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Now, if you are a student of John's gospel, you'll not remember this, but let me remind you. The very beginning of the gospel, the language is the same. Let me read to you from chapter 1. Just listen. One of the two who had heard John the Baptist speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, you will be called Cephas, the rock. The next day, Jesus went to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Back to John, chapter twelve. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and it's the language of calling disciples. Exactly the same thing. But now they're Greeks, they're Gentiles, they're not Jews. We wish to see Jesus. What a statement! You notice when push comes to shove and the shadow of the cross falls, there's no longer room for apologetics or questions. What about this? What about that? Could race? Could, could this happen? We want to see him. We want him. There are beautiful, there are electric moments in this narrative in the middle of all the treachery and betrayal and death. So here we are in a little building, a motley crew this morning. Hardly any of us here. I went to, to Costa between the two services. I just needed to be on my own. Half the congregation was in Costa. (laughs) But it was jam packed full. And for the first time in my life as a minister, I wanted to do stand up evangelism, but I didn't. That's the world. The world that you live in on Monday is not the world I live in, it's dark. And yet, in the darkness, there are little shafts of light, like, for a moment in that room, the sweet fragrance of devotion to Jesus was palpable to our hearts and to our minds and to our touch. In that room, in that little building on Morningside Road, for a moment, these people realized what a beautiful thing it is to be converted And there are sweet moments when a Christian, an ordinary soul like Mary, takes of her best and breaks it over the feet of our saviour. And there are sweet moments when someone says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And what does Jesus do in history when these Greeks say, We want to see Jesus? He meets them and he says, now it is time for me to die. What happens in real time when somebody in their heart says, I want to see Jesus? He meets them where they are and he says, the hour has now come. For you to realize that I died for you. Jesus describes his death on the cross using an image of a grain of wheat dying in order to produce fruit. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone, but if it dies, it bears much uh, fruit. Jesus' death is the necessary condition for the generation of life, for a multitude of people. The death of one seed, the divine seed, the death of the Son of Man yields a miracle harvest of souls. And then the passage ends, or our passage today ends rightly in verses 25 and 26. The shift is from Jesus to what it means to be his follower, to what we have to do to achieve the eternal life that his death achieves. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. That's quite complicated. What it really means is, in the end of the day, every single one of us in this room, if we are converted, is like Mary. So intertwined, so wrapped up, so caught up in the family of Jesus. So close to him, so fickle in our devotion, but periodically in our lives, maybe even now our heart misses a beat because we love him more than anything on the earth. We're either for him or we're against him. We're either in darkness or we're in light. Let me ask you, if you are in darkness and not in light, are you really sure? Are you really self-confident enough to reject the lordship of Christ and the life he offers for all eternity for the sake of whatever it is is stopping you throwing your Lord in with him? And so the passage ends with serious words. The stakes are high. Salvation costs a great deal. It costs Jesus his life. It will cost us a lot. The cross casts its shadow and it calls us. The empty tomb of Jesus shines its glorious light and invites us. Eternity is before us. What's before you in real life? Monday and eternity. Martin Luther said, I live with two days in view, today and eternity. Let me give you three days. Today, Monday morning and eternity. Let the shadow of the cross be with you tomorrow. Let the shadow of the empty tomb be with you tomorrow. Let the shadow of the resurrection morning to come be with you tomorrow. And remember these words, whoever loses his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it. And will we love Jesus like Mary with deep, deep devotion to our Jesus? Yes, we will. And listen to these words. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant also be. If anyone serves me, what would you expect Jesus to say? If anyone serves me in this world, just hang on there and we'll get you to glory. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your wonderful words, moving passages in Scripture, in the middle of betrayal and darkness and drizzle and the rain that is life and the bleakness and the brokenness of this world. For a moment, that room was filled with a fragrance of devotion to Jesus. Jesus. Somebody in the crowd raised their head above the parapet and said, we want to see him. Where is he? And someone becomes a believer and the angel of death has no business with them ever again. What a glorious gospel. Help us, Lord, to relish it and to bask in it In the middle of the toughness of life. For Jesus' sake. Amen.